The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Please turn to Romans 14. Romans chapter 14. While you're turning, let me give you a quick heads up on what's coming up over the next few weeks. Obviously, we're finishing this little mini-series we've been in uh, today. Next week is Father's Day, so we'll take a week uh, with that, and then we're going to take two weeks of what I'm calling pre-Genesis. You only thought it was the beginning. You know, there's some stuff we've got to talk about before we get into Genesis, and then we've got uh, a special speaker coming up uh, the week after that, and then I think it's middle of July, we're jumping in, both feet, into Genesis chapter 1, so uh, the time has, has approached now, we're getting there. Today, though, we're going to try to finish up uh, part 2 of a two-part message on the issue of alcohol. And so as we begin to do that, let's go ahead and open in prayer this morning. Dear Lord, you are clearly worthy of praise. You are the reason we have gathered today. Because we know you, we love you, we want to know you more. And Lord, more than anything else, though I know Our lives don't always reflect this. We want to live in a way that makes you happy. And so over these past three Sundays and now today, we have been looking at these issues of of biblical modesty and and alcohol and just simply asking the questions, what, what do you actually say about these subjects and then how do we live in relation to them? Lord, I hope that we have all come face to face with your word, that all of us have been convicted by various thoughts, actions, attitudes that were not biblical. And that as a result of that, Lord, as a result of your word being clear and your spirit being at work, you have revealed that to us and have helped us to change. And so this morning we're here again, same thing. We just want to know you. We just want to know your word. We want to understand what it is that you have to say to us. And so I pray this morning as we complete this study on the biblical view of alcohol that that you will make that very clear for all of us. Uh, You were so gracious to us last week, Lord. We, We talked about this very controversial subject, and yet everything that I heard was positive. People really wrestling with the text and understanding and, and agreeing with it. And so, Lord, I pray for that same, same outcome today, that we will come and we will look at the Scriptures and that we'll walk away agreeing with what you have to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I said, this is part two, the two-part message. If you were not here last week, let me say to you what I said last week. You really need to go back and hear this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my best to give you a quick update on what we looked at last time, but, but there's really no way that I can go through all of those things again, and so I would really encourage you to go online to our website. I think it was already up uh, when I looked this week. Go online to our website and listen to that message because it really lays the foundation for what we're going to look at today. Last week, I began by simply recognizing that when we talk about the issue of alcohol, there are really only two primary questions that we need to ask and answer. I already mentioned them in my prayer. Number one was, what does the Bible actually say about the issue of alcohol? Because I, 
the fact of the matter is, is there's a lot of things that people think it says, a lot of things people have heard that it says, but it seems like there's a lot of ignorance on the subject of what it actually says, like what's actually there when you stop and study this thing out. And so that was one question. The second question then that arises out of that is how should we then as Christians live in relation to what we saw? Which is, of course, where all of our understanding or study of the Bible should lead us. You should not be content to merely study for the sake of learning. You need to put some kind of feet to what you learn so that you can actually begin to live it out. And so while it's great to know what the Bible actually says about this, if we don't know what to do with it, it doesn't really help us much at all. And in order to answer question number one, I gave you what I called four factual observations about alcohol in the scriptures. And I said to you that the loaded word there was which word? Factual. Because what I'm communicating when I say that is that these four things are not merely my opinion. They're not merely my personal preference. These are real things that the scripture actually says about this, that every one of all preferences or all opinions who say they believe in the Lordship of Jesus Christ should agree to. Number one, we said that alcohol is an assumed piece of the cultural context of the scriptures. Meaning, wherever you look in the Bible, guess what you find? Alcohol. It's just there. It just shows up in stories randomly when there's, it's not about alcohol. So whether it's Melchizedek in Genesis 14, who's going out to bless Abraham, and what does he take with him? Bread and wine. Why wine? Well, it's just part of what they do. It's just their culture. And and there's no comment in the text of whether that's right or wrong. It's not the point. It just shows up in the story. Or John chapter 2, when Jesus is at the wedding at Cana, what are they serving at the wedding? Wine. They run out of wine, so what does Jesus do? He makes more wine. It's his very first miracle. Again, there's no comment made in the text as whether this is right or wrong or good or bad. It's just part of what they do. It's just part of the story, part of the cultural context there. And so no matter what you think about alcohol, you have to recognize that wherever you look in the Bible from Genesis 9 to uh, Revelation 19, you're going to find this thing showing up. Number two, second observation was that alcohol is associated with both good and evil. And this one will really let you see where people are coming from when you talk about the subject. Because if someone is completely against the consumption of alcohol, all they're going to show you are the passages that talk about it as evil. The ones that give you things uh, that would make you think it's bad. Or if you're talking to someone who's completely for it, guess what they're going to do? They're only going to take you to the passages that talk about it as something that's good, as something that's a blessing. Well, the reality is, is the Bible presents it as both. And so, on the subject of alcohol, you can read passages like we did in Hosea chapter 2, where God says, Israel didn't realize that I was the one who gave them wine. That God did that. That that alcohol was actually a gift from him to his nation, to his people. You you read things like uh, Psalm 104, where David talks about how wine can gladden the heart of man. He's clearly presenting it in a good light. And that doesn't fit with some people's understanding. But then on the other side, you can read stories like of what happened in Genesis 9, where Noah gets drunk, or, or, or Genesis 19, again, where Lot gets drunk. You see these different instances where alcohol is, in, is inserted into the story and the outcome of the story is clearly negative. You see uh, Solomon in Proverbs talking about some of the dangers of alcohol, particularly of being controlled by it. 
And so as we look at this, we have to come to a place where we can wrestle with and understand how can this thing be associated with both good and evil because that is just a fact of our understanding. Number three was that alcohol is not prohibited for God's people. It's not. And I told you, and I say it again today, you can spend all day long looking as far as you want. Go home and read the entire Bible today. Guess what you're going to find? It's not going to be a prohibition against alcohol because there's not one. There's nowhere does it say you cannot drink. Now, it says that for the priests who were getting ready to go and minister in the temple, in the tabernacle, they couldn't drink during that time. If you have taken a Nazarite vow, you couldn't drink, you couldn't eat anything that come from a grapevine. So there are specific prohibitions, but in terms of some overarching general prohibition against alcohol in the scriptures, it, it just doesn't exist. In fact, I took you to a passage that uh, would or should have made you understand God's perspective on this. In Deuteronomy 14, as he's explaining the tithe to them, he says, look, if... if the place you have to bring your tithe to is so far away that you can't carry everything there. Sell your stuff, take the money, go, and when you get there, buy whatever your heart desires. Whatever your appetite craves. It's a bull, a sheep, wine, strong drink, whatever it is, do it, eat it, consume it there before the Lord, you and your family, as an act of worship. Okay, well, if God is saying that, do you really expect to turn around and find some hidden verse somewhere where he's saying, now don't drink though? Everything I just said there in Deuteronomy 14 was a joke. It was a lie. Just ignore that. Don't drink. No. There's no prohibition against drinking found in the scriptures. And then number four, it's not prescribed either. Meaning there's no command. You don't have to drink. And you say, why are you bringing that up? I don't, I don't really get that one. Well, I'll make it really simple. It's because when you read some people who talk about this subject, they almost present alcohol as if it's a test of your love of God. As in, in other words, well, God made this. It's clearly uh, indicated as a blessing from him. So for you to reject one of God's blessings, that's just, what's wrong with you? Why wouldn't, why wouldn't you want to enjoy all of God's blessings? Well, I just would respond by saying, A, it's not commanded. B, there are a lot of blessings that God has given that we don't take advantage of. God made fish, right? Seafood, you can eat it, you can enjoy it. I hate seafood. I've chosen to with, uh, stay away from that particular blessing. I'll leave the fish in the sea or on your plate. I don't want that blessing. Does that mean I, I don't somehow love God because I don't like seafood? Well, that's stupid, and no one would say that. So why would we indicate this for alcohol either? It's not a command. You don't have to do it, and it's not a test of your faith or obedience of God or, or love of God. If you will accept these four factual observations, and I hope you will, I hope you did, then I would say that you have a fairly complete yet condensed understanding of what the Bible actually says about the issue of alcohol. But today, of course, we want to move into that slightly more complicated question regarding how we as Christians then should live in relation to alcohol. And in thinking of how to do this, I thought it would be helpful to give you a, a visual aid that will help you understand maybe a, like a practical framework for seeing the spectrum, okay? For understanding all that the Bible says about this and how you interact with it. I'm going to move over here so everyone can see this uh, really well. But if we think about alcohol, we, we really do need to think of it on a spectrum. And if we think about these factual observations that I just recounted for you, you'll realize, number one, that if it's not prohibited for God's people, then it's okay for us to consume alcohol in a controlled manner. 
And the word control there is key, okay? Because you either are in control of your alcohol or your alcohol is in control of you. It's one or the other. And we'll talk about the second one here in a moment. But as long as you are consuming it in a controlled manner, you are fine. The Bible doesn't prohibit it. The other option, since it doesn't command it, is for you to choose on your own to abstain. You can make a choice voluntarily on your own to just stay away from this thing. Anything that falls in the green here, anything between voluntary abstinence on one end and controlled consumption on the other will allow you to walk in obedience. If you fall anywhere in that spectrum, biblically based on the four things we saw last week, you are in obedience with the scriptures. But clearly, as you can see, as I've indicated, the spectrum continues beyond these two things. Because on either end of that, we run into problems. On either end of this, we run into sin. If I move to the right of voluntary abstinence, I move into mandatory abstinence. We're no longer simply a choice of, well, I choose to abstain. Now it's I must abstain. Now I must abstain because this thing is a sin before God. Well, what's the problem with that? It's not a sin. There's no prohibition. There's no command for you to say no to this or that you have to avoid it. And so if I begin to require either myself or others to stay away from the substance, what I've done is I've moved into the sin of legalism. And if you don't know what legalism is, let me give you a very simple definition of legalism. Legalism is when you use a non-biblical standard to judge yourself or others. That's simple. When you use a non-biblical standard to judge yourself or others, the Pharisees in in Jesus' time were guilty of this, and he regularly chastised them for this. He could be downright mean to them because they would say things like, well, you can't heal on the Sabbath. So what would Jesus do? He would heal on the Sabbath. He just, he just tried to tick them off, which was good because they needed to be. They had made up these rules that were loosely based on Scripture, right? You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, right? That's, that's in the law. Okay, we all agree on that. But where does it say you can't heal? Yet the, the Pharisees had made up these non-biblical standards and rules that were loosely tied to Scripture and then judged themselves and others based on whether or not you kept those non-biblical rules. And so because of that, Jesus said, you guys teach as doctrine the commandments of men. You ignore what the Scriptures say, but you teach as doctrine your own rules. This is a problem for Jesus. This would be the sin of legalism. If we move past that line and we begin to say, no, it's not just that you can abstain, it's that you must abstain because to do anything else will will cause you to sin. You have moved into the sin of legalism and that's something we need need to avoid. On the other end of the spectrum, if we move past controlled consumption, guess what we go into? Uncontrolled consumption. Well, no longer are we in control of what we're doing, but now the alcohol is, control of us, is in control of us. And, of course, you all know the word that's normally associated with this. What is it? It's alcoholism. I don't like that word. Okay? And I'm not going like, to get into a semantic argument with you. If you want to use the word, it's fine. Okay? Personally, I'm not a big fan of that word. I like the, the normal biblical term for this, and that's the word drunkenness. The sin of drunkenness. Someone who is out of control with their alcohol... They are a drunkard. The alcohol is now controlling them. And you say, well, really, drunkenness? That, that's such a bad thing? Uh, yeah, you know, God says, do not kill. He says it specifically that way. It's really clear, don't do it, don't kill. 
He says, don't get drunk the same exact way. And you say, well, well, Stacey, it was my anniversary, or you know, it was my birthday, it was my graduation day, or it was Thursday, and I just wanted to, I just wanted to do it this one time, no big deal, it doesn't matter. No, I'm pretty sure that when Jesus says, when the Scriptures say, do not get drunk, it means ever, under any circumstance or situation, because we are not to be under the control of anything other than the Holy Spirit. And so if I move to this end of the spectrum, again, I'm in sin. Either end There's problems, but as long as we stay somewhere in the middle there, somewhere between control consumption and voluntary abstinence, we are walking in faith and obedience to God. Now, here's my question. And you know, I'll put this back up for here for a second. Here's my question. How do you know where you should fall within that section of green there? Like, how do you go about making that decision, okay, which, which end should I fall on? Should I, should I be closer to this side or, or closer to this side? Well, let me give you what it's not, how you don't answer this question, all right? You don't answer this question simply by personal preference. That's not a sufficient answer. Well, I like beer, and God doesn't say I can't drink, so woo party at my house tonight. That, that is not a sufficient answer, or, well, I just, I grew up where that was bad, and I think it's bad now, even though you say it's not, but I have to agree with you, but I don't like it. No, I'm not going to drink. Okay, that's your personal preference. That's not a sufficient answer for why you choose where to fall on the spectrum. You need something better than personal preference. Your decision needs to be based primarily on biblical principle. However you, you decide this, however you answer it, Wherever you choose to fall in that green area there, your answer needs to be based on biblical principle. And in order for you to establish this kind of biblical principle in your heart and mind, you need to consider three factors that, you sh- that should influence your thoughts, your decisions, your actions, no matter where you're going to fall on that spectrum. Okay, I don't care which end you fall on, where in the middle. Three factors need to influence you. And we're going to find all three of these factors... And the passage that I've asked you to turn to here in Romans chapter 14. Now, we're going to read all of Romans 14 and the first seven verses of Romans 15, okay? Because this is going to be our passage. It's going to help us understand what these three factors are, these three principles that, that should influence our thoughts. And so let's begin in chapter 14, verse 1, and we're going to be reading for just a couple of minutes here. He says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. 
For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Now, you'll notice that alcohol was not the primary issue under consideration in that passage, was it? The, the primary issues under consideration was, number one, the eating of food. And he starts off with that subject there in verse 1, of whether or not you eat certain things uh, or don't. Some people thought they could eat anything they wanted. Other people felt that they could eat only vegetables. He then moves to special days there in verse 5. Some people think that certain days are special, they're holy, and they need to be observed a certain way. Other people think that every day is just alike and you can treat them all the same. It's not until you get to verse 17 here in chapter 4 that he finally mentions drinking. But he doesn't really even clarify exactly what he's talking about until verse 21. And so while alcohol is in view in this passage, it's not the primary subject. So why then would I bring us to this passage to help us see these three factors that it should influence our decisions on alcohol if alcohol is not even primarily in view here. Well, it's because all of these issues, the eating of food, the observing of day, days, alcohol, all of them are similar in that they have to do with subjects about which Christians can disagree and still walk in obedience to God. Now, you need to remember that in the context of this passage, Paul is writing to a church which has a large number of people in it who grew up in Judaism. And under 
the law, the Old Testament law in Judaism, there were certain things you could and could not eat, okay? You couldn't have pork, right? You, you kind of know that if, even today. If you've ever seen anything that's kosher, you know it has no pork in it, okay? They couldn't have anything that had pork in it. They had to treat certain days as holy, such as the Sabbath day, for example, where they couldn't work. They had to do things differently on that day. But now that Christ has come, now that Christ has died, now that he has been buried and risen again, he's fulfilled the law. He, he didn't do away with the law. We're going to talk about that here in a few weeks. He didn't just do away with it and just say, yeah, you, know, you don't have to follow anymore. No, he fulfilled it. It was done, okay? And because he had fulfilled the law, some of these regulations were no longer in effect for people. And so now it was okay to eat the pork. Now it's okay to not observe the Sabbath. The law has been fulfilled. Christ has died. That time is done. And so in this one church, you've got two groups of people. You've got people who recognize the freedom that they have in Jesus. And you've got people who just don't feel comfortable with it still. This guy over here, he's eating a ham sandwich on the Sabbath, all right? With like a side of bacon and pork rinds, okay? He's gone crazy, and he's loving it. He's loving his freedom in Christ, and it's fine. You've got this guy over here, though, who looks at him and is like, I I just don't know. (laughs) I I didn't grow up that way. I I don't think that I could do that. And so the question is, how do these two people interact? How How do they work together and live together as part of the same family in the, in the body of Christ? How do they make decisions in relation to one another? How do they view each other? See, these are the kinds of questions and problems that Paul wants to address. And Paul here, in order to do that, gives them three factors that should influence their thinking and that I would say should influence ours as well. Factor number one is that of faith or conscience. Faith or conscience. Notice that he begins and ends chapter 14 on the issue of faith. In verse 1 he says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. This is not about an arguing thing, okay, or debating class, okay? Welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Now just stop and point something out here in case that wasn't clear to you. Which of the two people in this scenario was the weak Christian? Is it the one having the ham sandwich on the Sabbath? Or the guy who's over here is like, I just don't know. It's this guy. This, this guy right here is the weak guy. This is the one who, he, he knows the gospel, certainly. He's, he's one of, of, of Christ, uh, the people Christ came to save. And yet he doesn't feel the freedom in his own heart to enjoy the liberties that he has in Christ. He he has a problem with his faith, with his conscience. He's weak in it. This is the weak person. I don't know how you grew up, but in the churches that I grew up in, that was not how it was explained to me. It was this person that was weak. The person who, who you know, wasn't going to toe the line and make sure they didn't cross anything or ever do anything. You know, that was the weak person over there. Those of us who, we, we don't do anything. You know, we're the strong. No. Biblically speaking, it's the opposite way around. This guy who doesn't understand his freedoms in Christ, he's called weak in the faith. If you look down at the end of chapter 14, you see he ends the, the chapter on the subject as well. He says that whoever, excuse me, whatever doesn't proceed from faith is sin. And so faith or conscience are like bookends to chapter 14, and he wants to address it. The word faith here basically is equivalent to the word conscience. 
What do you feel comfortable in? What, how do your beliefs affect your understanding of what you do? It has to do with what you believe is acceptable for you, not necessarily what's acceptable in God's eyes. That's not the question here. The question isn't whether or not the eating of the meat or the, the vegetables is right or wrong. The question is what's acceptable in your own heart. That's what Paul wants to, to, to talk about. And if you look down at verse 22 you really see Paul explain this in detail. He says, The faith you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on on himself for what he approves. The person who can eat the ham sandwich on the Sabbath, that's a happy guy. He's got his ham sandwich, everything's good. If he doesn't have any internal problems with it, praise the Lord, good for him. Blessed is this man. But whoever has doubts, is what if he eats? Condemned. Now, he's not talking about in, in like a salvation kind of sense, like this person's going to go to hell. He's talking, though, about their conscience and how they see this and, and in their own standing before the Lord. If, if this person were to eat and he has doubts about this, he's not 100% confident about his decision, well, well, then he's now moved into sin. And just to make sure that that's clear... He says, well, whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith and whatever doesn't proceed from faith is sin. So there you go. If, if in any way this person doubts their freedom in Jesus and then they move forward, whether or not the thing itself is wrong, which it's not here, they are sinning against the Lord. And so the very first issue that Paul wants to bring up with you is where's your heart in this matter? Are you 100% convinced that in this decision, where you're going to fall on that spectrum in relation to alcohol or any other subject like this, are you 100% convinced that you are in in walking in honor of the Lord, that your heart is fully on board with your choice? Some of you grew up in homes where alcohol was a no-no. Okay, there was no drinking allowed. And after you got away from that, you're like, I'm not going to live like that anymore. I'm going to have fun. All right? You have liberty in Jesus. I agree with you on that. But I also would not be surprised to find that some of you have violated your consciences many times. Because in the back of your heart, mind and heart, even though you know it's not wrong, something inside of you still just isn't 100% comfortable with it. And you're hoping that maybe if I violate my conscience enough times, that'll go away. Okay? That will happen probably but you're not walking in obedience to Christ. This one's an easy one. Okay, it's really, really simple. If you are not 100% convinced, don't do it. Just don't. There's no other discussion needed, no other reason needed. If anyone says, why don't you drink? Just say it. I'm not, I'm not thoroughly convinced in my own heart, and I know if I do it, and it's not from faith, it's going to be sin. I don't want to go there. Factor number one is your faith or conscience. Factor number two is love for others. Love for others. And there's really two aspects to this one. Aspect number one has to do with how we interact with others who differ from us and where they land on that spectrum. Okay? Because in this church here, we've got people all over the board. All right? We've got people on the voluntary abstinence side. We've got people on the control consumption side. How do you guys get along? How do you talk about it? How do, you, how do you live together as one family in Christ? Well, Paul begins laying this out for us here in verse 3. 
He says, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. He, he's addressing both sides because this is not a one-sided problem. Right? If you think it's only the, the people who don't drink, who judge the people who do, you're just naive. It goes both ways and all of these subjects that people judge each other. And Paul is not, he's not on board with this. Paul says that there should be no judging of one another based on where we fall on the spectrum. We are not to look at each other in any sort of suspect way. And the reason why we're not allowed to judge one another is because of our status before Christ. In verse 4, Paul asks a loaded question. He says, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another. Now, now think about that for a moment. He's giving all of us a title here. He's calling us servants. Servants of someone else. Well, if you don't know who that is, if you're a believer in Jesus, uh, Jesus is your master. Okay, He's your Lord. You are Jesus' servant. Who are you then as one servant to pass judgment on Jesus' servant on an area where he's already said this is okay. Parents, you get this, right? If, if you have your children out somewhere and you say to your two kids, hey, you know, you can run a mile off from here, but you've got to come back in a mile, and you tell the other one the same thing, you can run as well. If it was in our family, it would be Nathaniel. Nathaniel would go the mile. He would go the full distance as far as he could. Hannah would probably go 12 feet and then turn around and come right back to us. If Hannah says, you're bad for going away the mile, you're bad for going, wrong for going that far. That's wrong. You need to come back. That doesn't make any sense. Who is she to tell her brother that what he's doing in obedience to me is wrong? I'm the master. I'm the parent here, okay? No, why are you laughing at me saying I'm the master? I am the master of my house. No, no shame there. I, I'm the one who gets to call those shots, not her. Well, in a similar way, if Jesus has said, here's the spectrum, Fall anywhere you want in here in relation to your faith or conscience. What am I going to do as one servant telling you as another servant that you can't do this? Shame on you. You're bad. Why don't you do? Why don't you enjoy this? What? That makes no sense. We do not have the right to judge one another, particularly in areas where our master has told us that what we're doing is okay. You see, the only thing that we need to worry about in those situations is ourselves. That's it. That's why in verse 10, Paul says, hey, why do you pass judgment on your brother? He says to one side, or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. You want enough to worry about? That's enough to worry about right there. How you are going to give an account to the Lord. I don't have to give an account for you. You don't have to give an account for me. You don't need to answer for me on my choice. I don't need to answer for you on your choice. I have enough to deal with in my own life to worry about any of you. And that's true for every single one of us in here. So Paul, the way he addresses this and saying, hey, look, don't judge one another, is he simply reminds us of our status before Christ and the fact that we all will have to give an account for these things that we choose and do in our own lives. The second aspect to this, though, is, in my opinion, far more critical 
to my practical decisions and the choices I make in this particular area. The second aspect to loving one another is whether or not my action, my choice, my decision is going to cause another believer to sin. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago in relation to modesty, and I said if you, if you weren't aware of this, let me just kind of fill you in on something that if you cause another believer to sin, you're held accountable. Now, they're accountable too. I'm not, I'm not absolving the other person of guilt. But the fact of the matter is, biblically, if you cause another brother or sister in Christ to stumble, you also are guilty. And you see that here. In verse 13, he transitions to this idea. He says, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. He's done with talking about that, okay? Let's, let's not do that because that's stupid. Rather, let's decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. And sometimes people stop and they say, well, what does it mean to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of another person? Does that, you know, does that mean if they get mad at me, I shouldn't do it? No. It has absolutely nothing to do with whether or not the other person is mad at you for your choice. If someone is mad at you for your choice in this area, just point them back to the first part of what I talked about there, okay? That they shouldn't be judging each other. they got enough to deal with on their own. Leave me alone. You have complete freedom to say that to them because it's biblically accurate. So it's not about making people upset. The issue here with a stumbling block or a hindrance is whether or not you are going to cause that person to sin against their conscience and therefore to sin against the Lord. He says here, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. He has knowledge. He understands on this issue. He knows it better than all the rest of us do. There's nothing wrong with this food. There's nothing special about these days. The alcohol, it's not an issue. The issue is not the thing. He knows and is persuaded in the Lord Jesus. I love that wording there. Nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. He comes back to faith. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in what? In love. And the word grieved here doesn't mean that, like upset. Again, it's the idea of being injured of being brought into sin by these choices. He says, and he couldn't be any stronger here, look at that very next statement, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. It's like he's setting these two things on a scale and asking you a question. What's more important, your food, or destroying someone for who Jesus died? I mean, could, could you get like, put into a, a, a more unfair question than that? Do you really want to destroy someone that Jesus bled and died for because of food? Because of a special day? Because of alcohol? What kind of person are you? This is way more important, the fact that he came to die for them. He says that again, basically, there in verse 20. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. What's more important in your scale, the work of God or the food? The alcohol, the days. Which one takes more of your emphasis and energy? He says, everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. And as opposed to that, he says, and this is 
This is going to blow some of your minds. He said it would be better to not eat meat or drink wine or do anything that would cause your brother to stumble. I mean, if you have these two choices in front of you, I can eat the meat, I can drink the wine, I can observe the day or not observe the day, or I can destroy my brother in Christ. Hmm, which way should I go with this one? No. You need to, it'd be better to never do those things ever again in your entire life than to hurt another person for whom Jesus has come and died. Now that's tough, isn't it? That's that's hard. It's hard for a number of reasons. I won't even try to go through them. But that, that's, that's tough to live out. That requires a great deal of discernment. A great deal of discernment in each and every one of our, our lives and, and how we think through situations and people and how, what we understand and what we know and how we should act in various circumstances. That, that's why, and, and I know this hasn't always been popular, but that's why, as a church body, when we, when we stand up here and we say, hey, look, everyone, everyone come to a small group, everyone come to a picnic, that's why we don't put beer out. It's not because we think the beer is wrong, like somehow intrinsically sinful. It's not because we're being hypocritical, we're afraid we're going to make people upset. We recognize that some of you in here are hurting. Some of you in here would be caused to stumble by that. And it would be better to never ever do that again than for us to risk that in your hearts and lives. It's not worth it. For Frank and Ed and I, we have to give an account for your souls. That's, that's a daunting reality. I don't ever want to have to stand before the Lord and say, well, Lord, I'm sorry. I just thought it was so important that we, you know, we ate the meat, we, we didn't observe the day, we drank the alcohol, that I didn't really care what happened to the souls of the people that you gave me. No. On the personal level, you make those choices on your own. But this is how and why we think through those things the way we do. And if you're sitting there thinking, Stacey, this is, this is way too much. This is like going overboard. I can't possibly be held accountable for all these other people and, and thinking through these choices. Um, too bad. You are. That, that's what chapter 15, verse 1 is so good for. He says there that we who are strong, those of us who really understand, who know better, We have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. It's not not optional. Those of us who are strong, who know, we have an obligation placed on us by God Himself to bear with those who aren't in the same place yet. (laughs) That's hard. And you say, "I, I just... I still don't know, Stacey. I just, I'm struggling with how, what that's going to mean for me practically. Well, if you're struggling, then you just need to look at verses 2 and 3 because you know, Paul's already stabbed the knife in your back now. He's going to twist it a little bit. He says, oh, okay, you don't want to care for the weak? I understand. You don't, you don't want to look out for their interests you know, and not please yourself? I, I totally get it. It's no big deal. It's just how Jesus treated you. I mean, he just took your sins on himself and was brutally murdered on the cross so you didn't have to spend eternity in hell. But no big deal if you don't want to limit yourself here in this little circumstance with a person who, whom he died for. No big deal. You know where he turns to drive that point home? It's number three in the factors that should influence us. He turns to the gospel. He uses the gospel to explain to us why we have this obligation. He says, don't you realize what Jesus did for you? Verses 2 and 3. 
He didn't please himself. He took our reproaches, our sin, our punishment on himself out of love for us. Can't you, as someone who is a recipient of that wonderful gift, can't you treat other people in the same way who are struggling with these kinds of sins? You see, it's easy for us to talk about the freedom of the gospel, right? And there's many freedoms in the gospel. It frees us from sin. It frees us from punishment. It frees us from the law. It frees us to live our life in things we could have never done before in obedience to Christ. It's fun to talk about the freedoms of the gospel, but it's also important to talk about the the limits of the gospel as well because the gospel does limit us. It places expectations on us that we didn't have before. And one of those is that we do not live to please ourselves. We live for those around us out of love for them and love for our Savior. Because of the gospel, we have to welcome those who differ from us. Chapter 15, verse 7. Because of the gospel, we have to live in harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. 15 verses 5 and 6. And because of the gospel, we have to lay aside things that we are allowed to do in any context where we could cause a brother or sister in Christ to sin. Colossians, or excuse me, Romans 15 verses 1 through 3. This isn't throwing out the law. This isn't setting standards that are just man-made. This is what the text says to us. We have this obligation to act in ways that are loving for those whom Christ has died to save. That love for them, that love for Christ should be the primary motivating factor in how we decide to live our lives in relation to alcohol. Now, once you've thought through these three factors, okay, then and only then, can you really make your decision about where you're going to fall on the spectrum? And I'll put it back up here for us. You know, where are you in the matter of faith? How, how, how fully confident are you in your own mind that your choice is right? If you're not fully confident, you need to be a voluntary abstainer. I'm just telling you right now, that one's the easy one. I said that up front. What does love for others do to your decision? Is your choice, are your choices going to make others sin? And some of you are going to address that question in different ways. Some of you are going to say, well, I don't ever want to risk that, so I'm just not going to drink. I'm going to voluntarily abstain. Praise the Lord. That's a great choice. Others of you are going to say, I don't, I don't think I need to do that, but I do need to be discerning. I need to make sure I know my audience and know the people I'm around so that I don't in any way, shape, or form cause them to sin. And so you're going to make choices to limit yourselves in situations where you just don't know That's wise, that's biblical, and you can still be a controlled consumer in obedience to Christ. All of us need to think about the gospel and think about how Christ's death for us and his willingness to give up his rights should influence both ourselves and how we view those who differ from us. If you don't drink, don't you judge those who do. You're not their judge. You're not their savior. You didn't die for their sins. Christ did, and he said it's okay. You leave them alone. You worry about yourself. If you do drink, you better think about those who don't. You better think about the people in this room who have struggled with it, are struggling with it, and no one knows they're struggling with it. You need to think about how your actions may possibly impact them. This is not a small topic. Lives have been destroyed by alcohol. And while we have freedoms in Christ, we can't deny the realities of what this thing can do. It's a danger. The scriptures themselves say it, but it can also be a blessing at the same time. It all depends on how you interact with it. Look, in a room full of people, 
even this number here? I, I would be a fool if I didn't believe that there's three, four, five of you in here. You're struggling with drunkenness. Maybe on a regular basis, everyday kind of thing. Maybe it's an occasional basis where you have to have your alcohol. Listen, if you have to have alcohol, you're controlled by it. You want a quick test? Make sure your heart's good here? Go the rest of the month. Don't drink a drop. If you can't do it, something's wrong. I'm telling you now, something is wrong If you can't control this thing, if it's controlling you, you are no longer walking in obedience. You are now in drunkenness. You are sinning against God and you need help. Because it's a very powerful thing. It alters the mind. It alters the body. It changes people and it can kill people. You need to turn to your family, your friends, your small group, anyone. You need help. And you know what you will find? People who love you who will help you, who will walk that path with you, who will do everything in their power to help you walk in obedience to Jesus Christ. We love you. We want that opportunity. If you're struggling with drunkenness, please, please go to someone. Please. If you're on the other end of the spectrum and you're struggling with legalism, you're sitting there angry at me because I've stood up here now for two Sundays and said, it's okay, you can drink. I've said publicly what many people already knew privately, but no one wants to talk about because it's embarrassing or afraid it's going to make someone angry. I'm not worried about making anyone angry. If you're sitting there struggling with legalism and you're angry with me because you're thinking, How did, doesn't he know what could happen? Doesn't he know what it did to my home, to my parents, to my children, to my brother, my sister? I understand. I understand what it did. I, in our own family, for Jamie and I, we have people who have been drastically impacted by alcohol. I know it's dangerous. But I can't stand up here and say what the scriptures don't say. I can't stand up here and just make stuff up because it sounds good. That's not my role. My job is to open up the scriptures and have us interact with what God actually says. And this is what he says. And I'm sorry for your hurt. I really am. Again, I understand. But it doesn't change the fact of how we have to live before the Lord. John Piper, he asked a very interesting question. He said, and he didn't have the spectrum up here, but he was dealing with the two sins, legalism and drunkenness. He said, of those two sins there, which one do you think sends more people to hell? That's a great question. I'm pretty sure that he was right in his answer. It's the sin of legalism. You know why? Because the drunkard knows that he needs help. The drunkard knows that he's in trouble. The drunkard recognizes that there's a hole in his heart and he's trying to fill it by pouring more and more alcohol into it. But the legalist, he thinks he's just fine. See, Jesus had a great deal of patience with drunkards. He ate with them. He talked with them. He lived life with them. He had no patience for the Pharisees. None whatsoever. He did everything he could to antagonize them and make sure that they knew how wrong they were. He said, look, the sick need a doctor, but those who are well, (laughs) they don't. He came to heal the sick. And so if I had to pick which is the greater danger to the church of Jesus Christ, it's not drunkenness. It's legalism. That's the greater danger here because many, many people will die and wake up opening their eyes in hell thinking all along that they had been just fine, that they had kept all these little rules and standards that they had set for themselves and that God was going to accept them. Oh, I'm a good person. I did this. I did this. They're going to wake up and they're going to be in hell having no clue, no clue before that, that they weren't right with God. 
This is a real problem over here. If you're struggling with drunkenness, I, I almost thank God for you. I'd rather deal with you than the other because the other is far, far more dangerous. Christ came to save those who are lost. He died so that wicked, sinful people like us, all of us, could, die, could be with him and be made right with God. And now that God has accepted us through faith in Jesus Christ, we are given the liberty to choose how we live in relation to this issue, how we live to best glorify God with our daily lives. And as long as you're walking within the spectrum of obedience, wherever you fall, then you can know, as long as your, your, faith, your conscience is clear, you're, you're considering others, you're considering the gospel, you can know that you are doing your best to live out your life in a way that pleases God in the area of alcohol. Let's pray. Lord, this, this is a sensitive and complicated subject. It's, your word isn't complicated. Your word is clear. We, we saw what you had to say about it, and we understand because you've made it perfectly clear. There, there, there's no question in, in these areas. The problem comes, Lord, for us is because we are so sinful, and we are foolish people, and we're trying to live our lives as best we can, making the best decisions we can, trying to please you amongst a whole bunch of other people who are doing the same thing, and we don't always come out on the same page. And so, Lord, right now, I pray that you will use our church here, this, this group of people in this room, that you will use us to display to the world how your children can live together in unity without uniformity. That we can differ on these things where you yourself, you, our master, have allowed us to differ and still love one another still walk in harmony together in Jesus Christ, still live our lives together with the same goal of trying to be like Jesus. I pray, Lord, that harmony and unity would reign in Cornerstone and that because of our great love for one another, as you said in John 13, people will clearly, clearly know that we are your disciples and they will give honor and praise to you for what you're doing here. Lord, I pray for those in the room who are struggling with alcohol. I, I just believe, Lord, that in this many people, there are some who are hiding it. Maybe even right now you are convicting a heart, two hearts, three hearts, whatever, because they know their control. They can't go days without it. When they drink, they drink too much and they lose control. And, and right now, Lord, your spirit is convicting. I pray, Lord, I plead with you, that you will do a work in that person's life so that they desire the change and are willing to come forward and seek it. There's danger for them, Lord. Help them see that. Help those that they come to for help to reach out and love, to work with them and walk with them through that process because it can be very, very difficult and complicated. Give us wisdom in this area, Lord, so that we can do this well. Those who are struggling with legalism, Lord, and again, I can't help but believe we might have a few in here like that as well who just want to hold on to this thought that, that this is a sin no matter what. They don't want to hear anything else. I pray, Lord, that you will break their hearts to see that you and you alone get to determine what is and is not a sin. 
that you and you alone are the master, not them. You're the judge, not them. And Lord, I pray that your spirit will use even these two messages here to really help them see their need to submit to you because that is their greatest need at this point. For all of us, Lord, I pray that we will take the time to really examine our hearts and determine whether or not we can make the choices we make in 100% confidence that we're walking in a way that honors you. Lord, for those in here maybe who have been violating their conscience, I pray that you will give them the courage to just be honest and just make their choice. It's not a difficult thing. It's not a life or death issue. Just to make their choice so that they can live every day in faith, full confidence that they are pleasing you so that in no way will they be condemned by the choices they make. I pray that you'll help us all to love one another and not be judging each other. There's no sense in which we, we view one person as superior or another as inferior, but Lord, we will see each other as fellow servants of Jesus Christ. You are the only one who gets to make those calls. I pray, Lord, that everyone in this room will be sensitive to each other's struggles, that this church will be known for its discernment, that we will very carefully consider every context we're in, every situation, that even though it's difficult and complicated and we're going to make mistakes, but Lord, we will do our best purpose in our hearts, to live out in life, to never be a stumbling block to another believer. Help us, Lord, to be very zealous about that, to love each other in that way. And help us to do it because that's how you live for us. May the gospel really have an impact on us in this area. So that when we think about these things, we talk about them, it's not a law. It's not a standard. There's, There's no right or wrong with this one. As long as we're walking in obedience and what you've allowed not, one person's not better than the other, but we do all things for, at all times because of the gospel, because you came and gave up your rights for us. Lord, help us to willingly, lovingly do the same for others when and where that's necessary. And so, Lord, all of this requires a great deal of wisdom that we don't have. And so we simply do what James told us to do, that if anyone lacks wisdom, we should come to you and ask because you give it. You give it liberally. You never chastise us for asking. And so, Lord, we come now as a church body and we beg you for wisdom in this area. Help us, Lord, to do everything out of love for you first and foremost. So that in the end, you will have been pleased with our lives. and We will have taken one more step in looking like our Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen.